Well, I don't know about you, but for me, this week is always the saddest week, perhaps, in the year. And uh, as I've walked to work this week, it's got progressively sadder. Not because I was coming to work each day, uh, but walking up through Stockbridge, um, on Tuesday, there was the odd casualty. The odd Christmas tree that had been thrown out. By Thursday, it was like a tsunami of Christmas trees had been thrown out. All of them were sort of bare, stripped, denuded of their um, pine needles. And they sort of lay there like sort of Christmas corpses as a commentary on the Christmas that was no more. This is a very sad week. The days seem very dark, the nights seem very long, and spring seems a long, long way away. Libby and John went out to Holyrood Park yesterday to watch Mo Farah, and they said, um, this, welcome to freezing Scotland, and I thought, it's like this in June, get used to it. Um, <laughs> Because the sun, you will rarely see the sun. Um, but it feels very dark, it feels very cold, and as I say, spring seems a long, long way away. Um, like most people, we threw out the Christmas cards uh, this week. We took them down first, um, but we threw them out, and there were, there were all those pictures that are Victorian scenes of a, of a Christmas fantasy that never existed. Uh, there were all the sort of funny pictures of Father Christmas, and then there were the ones that I liked best, the sort of jokey ones about the nativity. Um, my favorite one this year was one of the wise men at home uh, with Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus walking up the drive, and one magi was saying to the other, inside. Yeah, last year we went to there, so this year it's their turn to come to ours. It seemed uh, quite uh, appropriate, and perhaps the closest that we get to today's reading. This reading from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, of the escape into Egypt, including the slaughter of the innocents, seems to sort of jar with the Christmas, perhaps, that we've had up till now. This is the one incident from the Christmas story that never makes it into a Christmas card or a nativity play. The slaughter of the innocents or the flight into Egypt rarely makes it into a carol. You won't find somebody turning to the Advent calendar door number 29 with the slaughter of the innocents and 20 or 30 under twos being massacred by Herod's troops. Oh, I think I'll have a chocolate. Um, it doesn't quite go together with the picture of Christmas that we are presented with year on year. That gentle, reassuring image that we have of the first Christmas. This incident of the slaughter of the innocents, where Herod sends his troops into Bethlehem to kill every child under the age of two, and where the, the family of Jesus, Mary and Joseph and, and the baby Jesus, have to flee into Egypt as refugees in order to escape the genocide that's going on in Bethlehem, all that seems to jar with this picture that we often have of Christmas, this warm, reassuring Christmas. It is too shocking. It's too raw. It's too real, even. And yet it says something deeply profound. Because Christmas is about God coming into the world. In the words of John chapter 1, the message version, God moves into the neighborhood. But what sort of neighborhood does God move into? Is it a nice middle-class one, like Stockbridge or Morningside? Or is it one that is still and quiet, a silent night, 
a neighborhood where, to quote the carol, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That just tells you that the author of that carol has never had small children in his or her house. Is it really a silent night? Or is it a real neighborhood? As Philip Yancey puts it, a sordid neighborhood. A neighborhood like yours, a neighborhood like mine, that has real people with real problems, with real difficulties. A world that is full of conflict, pain, confusion, anger, and tragedy. Well, the slaughter of the innocents reminds us that the world that God came into was the same world as ours. A world of war and genocide. A world of tragedy and refugees, of pain and sadness and injustice. And in essence, what we have in Matthew chapter 2 is a picture of two kings. King Herod and King Jesus. So let's look firstly at Herod. Now Herod is a very complex person. And by now he's aged 70 years of age. He's described in history and in the Bible as Herod the Great. Somehow by now he had held on to his throne for 40 years. No mean feat in the ancient world. Israel's history had been one of successive invasions, coups, and wars. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, then the Persians had all marched through and over the promised land and left their bloody footmarks all over Israel. Alexander the Great, and then a particularly nasty character called Antiochus IV Epaphanes, catchy title, um, he'd come after Alexander the Great, and Antiochus had been the, the Jews' greatest enemy until the arrival of Adolf Hitler. He'd been incredibly cruel to the Jewish people, and the uprising against Antiochus is remembered every year at the Feast of Hanukkah. But soon after his reign, Imperial Rome had arrived to quash the rebellion and install Herod as their king of the Jews. Now, Herod, as I say, was a complicated person. Racially, he was an Arab. Religiously, he was a Jew. But culturally, he was Greek. The word Herod is a Greek name. And it's thought that Herod actually spoke Greek as his first language. And he even tried to turn Jerusalem into a Greek city. Lots of his building projects... And there was nobody else in the ancient world like Herod for building projects. Most of his building projects were trying to make Jerusalem more like Athens. So he spoke Greek as his first language. He was, had a Greek name. And he was trying to turn Jerusalem into a Greek city. It maybe explains why he didn't necessarily endear himself to the Jewish people. Because they didn't identify with him as their ruler. Now, as I say, he may have been racially an Arab, religiously Jewish, culturally a Greek, but politically, he was definitely a Roman. He had sided with the Romans in every major conflict in recent history. But he made the mistake of choosing the losing side in the Roman civil war between Mark Antony and Octavian. Um, There'd been this big war that culminated in this huge battle, and Octavian, who later became the emperor Caesar Augustus, had beaten Mark Antony in that battle. 
Now, Herod had aligned himself with the forces of Mark Antony. He therefore knew that his chances of retaining the throne were very, very slim. So he did something incredibly risky. He went to Rome itself and stood before the new emperor, Caesar Augustus, the artist formerly known as Octavian, and he stood before him and said, would you please forget not that I was on the side of your enemy, Mark Antony, but remember only this, how faithful and trusted a friend I am and was of Mark Antony. In essence, he was saying to the emperor, yeah, I know I was on the other guy's side, but I stayed faithful to him even though he lost. Imagine how faithful I could be to you. I am a person that you can trust. I am a person that you can trust to look after Israel. I am a person that you can trust to deliver taxes and people for your army from Jerusalem. And Caesar Augustus was so impressed, probably by Herod's daring, that he said, okay, I trust you. I give to you your throne back, and he sent Herod back to Jerusalem in order to carry on being the king of the Jews. Now, we know of Herod, perhaps, as a weak and corrupt old man. But actually, history tells us a different story about Herod. When he was younger, he was apparently good-looking and powerfully built. And he personally led his army into ten different wars. That's a bit different to the sort of picture that we have of Herod, perhaps. Ten different wars, he personally led the army into battle, whether they'd won or whether they had lost. And he was something of a visionary leader. As I said, he built incredible buildings in Jerusalem, and the massive stone temple that he built can still be seen today in Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, it's Herod's temple that's there. 2,000 years, it's outlasted Herod. So actually, there's a great deal to admire about Herod, even though from the picture that we have of him, we think of him as this weak, corrupt, complex, quite cruel character, which undoubtedly he was at the same time. Because when we pick up his story in Matthew chapter 2, things are beginning to unravel for Herod. He's reaching the end of his life. And he's only managed to cling on to his throne by being incredibly cruel to anybody that he perceived to be a threat. When he ascended to the throne, he had massacred anybody who would uh, belong to his predecessor's family. He had them wiped out in case they came back to bite him, in case they came to claim the throne off him. He had them slaughtered and killed. He married, during the course of his lifetime, ten women in all. I'll just let that hang there without comment, but he married ten women in all. But whenever he perceived one of them to be a threat, he had them put to death. He made Henry VIII of England look like a Boy Scout. Because he married ten of them, he had his favorite wife, Mariam, killed when he perceived that she was a threat to him. He went even further and had her mum, his mother-in-law, Alexandra, killed because he perceived her to be a threat to his throne. And he had three of his sons 
executed. Two of them drowned because, again, he perceived each of them to be a threat to his throne. So you start to get a picture of the paranoia that is at work within Herod. It's interesting talking after the nine o'clock service to a couple in the church who'd just been out to a man uh, for Christmas to see a family relative uh, out there. And they said they'd suddenly, living in the Middle East over Christmas and living in a state ruled by a single hereditary ruler whose model of monarchy was a bit different to the one in the UK, you get an insight into what it's like to exist in a world where everybody is scared stiff of doing and saying the wrong thing because all power resides in one person. That's the same in some Middle Eastern states today. It was the same in Herod's Israel and Herod's Jerusalem. He'd executed over half of the Sanhedrin during his reign. Again, that perhaps gives us a different perspective on why when Jesus starts to teach 30 years later, the Sanhedrin are a bit nervous about somebody starting to proclaim a kingdom that is different to Herod's or different to Rome. Because their recent history 30 years before is that over half of the Sanhedrin were executed if they did or said something that the king didn't approve of. So hence their anxiety when Jesus starts to teach about the kingdom of God and starts to teach in a way that begins to threaten who is on the throne. He'd had 300 of his courtiers executed during his time as king. During his 40 years of being king, he'd had 300 of them executed at various points for doing and saying the wrong thing. And he he was fairly aware of how unpopular he was as a king. He knew that when he died, most people would not mourn his passing. And so he came up with an ingenious plan to make sure that people were really, really sad when he died. He had his soldiers round up thousands of, uh, they were called notable people. Um, So people who were in the nobility, people who were landowners, people who were in authority, people who were in the administration, uh, people who were governors um, over the different parts of his kingdom. And they were all taken to Jericho and sort of corralled in the stadium in Jericho, basically under, under martial law in this stadium. And the idea was that when news came from Jerusalem to Jericho that King Herod had died, all the people in this stadium were to be put to death. This was a guy that you did not mess with. Now, thankfully, when Herod died, the soldiers did not carry out his orders, and the thousands of nobles who were in the stadium were not put to death. But that's the sort of person that we're dealing with. That's the sort of environment where he is incredibly insecure, incredibly frightening, and incredibly frightened of losing power. He's like any dictator in history. Incredible power and domination, but also incredible fragility and insecurity at the same time. So it's against that background that the slaughter of the innocents, incredibly sad though it was, has to be seen perhaps in a different perspective. Bethlehem wouldn't have been 
very big at the time when Jesus was born. It was probably just a village. So I'm not trying to sort of lessen it, but we're only talking about 20 or 30 children. There's still 20 or 30 children under the age of two. I get that. But when it says the slaughter of the innocents, it's not the thousands of children, perhaps, that we imagine. It's maybe 20, most 30 children under the age of two. Yes, incredibly tragic, incredibly sad, but actually in comparison with the other things that Herod did during the course of his reign, quite minor, quite small. Incredibly sad for the mothers of Bethlehem, obviously, who grieved for their children, but on the bigger scale, actually quite small. So here we have a king who is old, 70, desperately insecure, so easily threatened, and the arrival of magi from the east, we don't know how many there were, tradition says there were three because there were three gifts, but we don't know, there could have been six, there could have been 20, there could have been 40, we just don't know. The magi arrive, and rather unwisely, they ask this question. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now, with a bit of hindsight, the question they should have asked was this. Where is he that is to be born king of the Jews? Or where is he that is born that will become king of the Jews? That's not what they say. The question they ask is, where is he that is born king of the Jews? That's why Herod reacts in the way that he does. Because by their question, they're proclaiming another king. Not another heir, not another claim to the throne. They're saying, where is the child that has been born who is king of the Jews? Hence, Herod gets a bit twitchy. And ask them to go and, and tell him where the baby is born so that he too may go and worship him. Now the story unravels, the story unfolds. But we have that picture of the first king. And Matthew paints a contrast with the second king in Matthew chapter 2. It's striking that again and again, if you read those verses uh, that Julie read for us a few moments ago, or the verses uh, from verses 1 uh, to 12 in Matthew chapter 2, that Jesus is simply referred to by one title, the child. Eight times in those verses, Jesus is referred to as the child. Where is the child? When they took the child, eight times, he is simply the child. Herod is Herod the Great. Jesus is simply the child. John Ortberg tells us that the word that would have been used to describe Jesus when he was born is mamza. It's the Aramaic word to describe a child that was born illegitimately outside of marriage. Ortberg says, every language in human history has a word to describe such children. Every one of them is ugly. None of them are attractive. That's this child. This child is a mamza, a child that's been born out of wedlock. A child that's been born out of marriage. 
And this child is surely no threat. It was interesting at nine o'clock when I was doing this same talk, we've got two or three children. We haven't got any children's groups at the moment in the nine o'clock. So we had two or three under twos crying during this part of the talk. And it was quite sort of eerie to actually speak about a child as a child cried at the back. Don't feel free to improvise, any of you. But you've got this strange juxtaposition of talking about a child who is no threat as a, as a small child cried at the back of church. That's what God became. God became a child. God became a baby. God became a toddler. God became a mamza. And that's quite striking because in Greek society, in Jewish society, in Roman society, each of them incredibly status-driven. Where you came in society was very, very important. What rank you were, what position you had, it was even more status-driven than we are. Children came at the bottom of the pile. I discovered this week that in both Latin and Greek, the word for children literally was translated by not speaking. That's the word for children. They are people, things that do not speak. They weren't just not seen. They certainly weren't heard. Children were bottom of the pile. The practice in the ancient world of what was called exposure was a common one. So perhaps you were too poor. You had quite a few children already. There was no such thing as uh, contraception in the way that we understand it. You were too poor. You had another child. You couldn't afford to divide the food between your existing family and another child. So you would go through the practice of what was called exposure. You would take your child and simply leave your child on a hillside. Leave them to die. Or perhaps you were too wealthy and you didn't want your estate to be divided up any more than it was going to be. You had enough children, thank you very much. So again, you were allowed in, Jewish, in Greek and Roman society, although the Jews were against it, to practice exposure. You took your child simply onto a hillside and you left the child to die. If the child was the wrong gender, i.e. female, you were allowed to take the child onto the hillside and just leave it to die. If the child was a mamza, you were allowed to go through the practice of exposure, to take the child out of the city wall and just simply leave it on the hillside and leave it to die. God becomes a mamza. God becomes a child. God enters into society, into the world, in the lowest possible way that he can. It's lower even than a servant or a slave. Children could be disposed of in the way that you and I dispose of something we just chuck away. Disposable. Bishop Tom Wright tells the story of preaching at a carol service in Westminster Abbey 
when a famous historian who was well known for his skepticism towards the Christian faith was present in the congregation. And after the service, the historian bounded up to Tom Wright and said, I finally worked it out, why people like Christmas. Really, Tom Wright said, do tell me. The historian shared his conclusion. It's the baby, he said. A baby threatens no one. So the whole thing is a happy event which means nothing at all. Tom Wright says that he was dumbfounded. He didn't know where to begin to start to unpick how wrong this eminent historian was. He says it just showed him how little this historian had actually read, never mind understood, the biblical accounts of the life of Jesus. Here we have a child, just a child, but a child who threatens kings, whose birth leads to infanticide, whose followers turn Jerusalem, Rome, and Greece upside down over the next 60 years, and 2,000 years later, whose influence is still seen around the world. This child inspires a movement that has shaped the world as we know it. And one of the fundamental things about Christmas, the first Christmas, is it is not a happy event. That seems odd, having gone through the previous two or three weeks that we've just gone through. If there's one thing that we think about Christmas, it's a happy event. The first Christmas was not a happy event. For the mothers in Bethlehem, for the children who were killed, for the Magi who travelled so far and so long. It is not a happy event, as baby boys are butchered by Herod's soldiers. And yet this event, which is not a happy event, which means nothing at all, actually is an event that speaks of something at the very heart of human existence. The world into which Jesus came was not a nice world. The world into which Jesus came was not a peaceful or perfect world. The world into which Jesus came was not a world that was getting better or good enough or a world from which we have progressed, if we're honest, in many ways. It was a world exactly the same as your world and my world. It was a world of sadness. It was a world of genocide. It was a world of tragedy. It was a world of injustice. It was a world of pain. It was a world of grief. It was a world of, well, where we just don't know how we can find the words to describe what we see. And it was such a world that God came to redeem. You see, God did not come into the world to exist in a Christmas nativity scene. God did not come into the world to exist in a sort of Victorian fantasy about Christmas. Jesus came into the real world, a world of flesh and blood, a world of pain and grief, a world of hard things and sad things, and a world where things occur that we just don't know how to respond to. A world where even in 2016, in the past two weeks alone, Boko Haram have apparently killed 87 Christians in Nigeria. But such things don't make the headlines. 
but they're becoming the norm. And the fact is that God can still come to places of deep pain and deep hurt, to people who feel insignificant, to people who feel forgotten, or people who feel consumed by grief, just like the mothers of Bethlehem, just perhaps like you this morning. For some of us, the past two or three weeks will have been at times painful. Christmas does that. On Christmas afternoon, for some reason, I don't know why, but I just suddenly found myself overwhelmed with sadness for my parents who died three or four years ago. I've been through Christmases between now and then, but I couldn't stay with the rest of the family and, and watch the film. I had, it was so bad, I went and did the washing up. It was that bad. <laughs> but I just suddenly felt overwhelmed by, with a, a wave of sadness. Now, the temptation is to think that such feelings are unchristmassy. The story of the slaughter of the innocents, the story of the flight into Egypt, says it's exactly for those situations, for those feelings, that Jesus came. It's exactly for that type of world that he was born into the world. The pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, Tim Keller, makes this penetrating observation about the God that we Christians believe in. He says, there is no way to have a real relationship without becoming vulnerable to hurt. Christmas tells us that God became breakable and fragile. God became someone we could hurt. Why? to get us back. No other religion, whether secularism, Greco-Roman paganism, Eastern religion, Judaism or Islam, believes that God became breakable or suffered or had a body. That is something that is unique to the Christian faith. We believe that God became breakable. We believe that God became fragile. We believe that God suffered. In a few moments, we'll take bread and wine. And they remind us to us that the God that we worship, yes, is a God who is powerful. Yes, is a God who's able to bring healing. Yes, is a God who's able to transform any and every situation but he's also a God who knows what it is to feel pain. He knows what it is to feel fragile. He knows what it is to feel vulnerable. He knows what it is to feel betrayal. He knows what it is to feel bereavement. He knows what it is to feel sadness. He even knows what it feels like to die. No other belief system in the world proclaims that. Yes, we believe that God's strength is made perfect, but in our weakness. And it's through his weakness that we can know that strength and that forgiveness. God did not come into a world that was good enough. God did not come into a world that was nice. God did not come into a world that was perfect. God did not come into a world where there were no questions about suffering. 
But right from the beginning, from the first Christmas, from the first few months of his earthly life, God knew what it was to be surrounded by pain, by tragedy, by death. Which makes his coming all the more remarkable. That we believe in a God who is breakable. A God who suffers. And a God who knows exactly what it is to feel what we feel. Let's pray.